Our Bible reading um, it comes from Matthew on page 999, and it comes from chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, beginning at verse 45 on page 999. From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. The bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. When the centurion and those with him, who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Many women were there, watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of Zebedee's sons. Jill, thank you so much for reading those uh, those words, which I guess if you have been to Easter services down the years uh, are probably very, very familiar words. They're words that are read in many churches on most Good Fridays, familiar words. But let's ask God to help us to understand these words anew and perhaps to pick out new things which haven't occurred to us before from these familiar words. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the accounts that we have in the Gospels of not just Good Friday, uh, not just Easter Sunday, but all the events that led up in Jesus' life to these events. They are, as we have said, familiar. But Heavenly Father, we pray that they will strike us with new force and give us new insight into your great love for us. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. And from time to time, you may be aware, writers have written fictional accounts which appear to involve the death of God. Uh, For instance, Star Trek V, by common consent, by far and away the worst film in that entire franchise, has as its climax the apparent destruction of something that might be called God. Perhaps more famously, Philip Pullman in the third part of his Dark Materials trilogy includes a chapter in which God meets his end, not so much with a bang as with a whimper. The death of God. You know, one of the reasons why many of these fictionalized accounts that involve uh, the destruction or the death of God, so often seem very unconvincing, is that very often the God they depict is is far too small and inadequate. 
you can't help feel that the God as depicted by Pullman is too fragile to be credible. I suspect that most people, whether they believe in God or not, would feel that a God who dies of old age doesn't really warrant the title of God at all. And yet, and yet when you turn to the Gospels, this is what you have at the end of each one of them. In our case, Matthew's Gospel. You have an account of the death of God. And the Bible is in absolutely no doubt that Jesus claimed to be God. Is absolutely no doubt that the events that surrounded his life confirmed that this was true. If you've been coming to Bishop Hannington uh, over recent weeks, you'll remember that for many of our Sunday morning sermons, we've been looking at Matthew's Gospel, an earlier part of Matthew's Gospel. We've been thinking about chapters 16 and 17 in particular. In Matthew 16, uh, we have the declaration by Peter on behalf of all the disciples uh, that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God, a statement that wasn't contradicted in any way by Jesus. In chapter 17, you have the account of the transfiguration, where there is a vision of God's glory in Christ. Furthermore, Matthew and the other Gospels also affirm that Jesus was neither weak nor frail, but powerful and in control. The Gospels make it clear that Jesus had power and authority over illness, over nature, and even death itself. And yet this divine Jesus dies. None of the Gospels go into a great deal of detail about the, the mechanism, the means by which, by which Jesus died. They simply tell us that he was crucified. And of course, contemporary readers would have understood exactly how crucifixion worked. Uh, they probably would have been grateful to Matthew for not going into the details. Um, the Cicero, the Roman politician and lawyer, described crucifixion as a most cruel and terrible punishment and believed that it was so degrading that it shouldn't be discussed by Roman citizens. It was designed to be a long and lingering death. It was bad enough just to know that this had happened to Jesus had happened to God. But while Matthew doesn't go into the details of how Jesus died, both he and the other gospel writers are clear that this was not the result of some accident, that Jesus had just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Nor was it the result of some misjudgment. Jesus had not seen it coming. Nor was it the result of the cleverness and scheming of, of, of Jesus' enemies uh, they'd finally got the better over him. The Gospels are clear that these events, the death of Jesus, the death of God, was something that happened deliberately. It was deliberate. We've already mentioned chapter 16 of Matthew's Gospel. It's a key point in Matthew's narrative, for not only do we read of De Peter's declaration that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of the living God, we also have the first of several instances when Jesus spells out to his disciples just what's going to happen. In chapter 16 and verse 21, it reads like this. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, 
the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And when Peter rebukes him for, for this, well, I don't know what Peter made of him, but when Peter rebukes him for this statement, Jesus' response is swift and unequivocal. He uses the strongest language imaginable to rebuke Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is blunt and direct language. The death of Jesus was deliberate. It was part of the outworking of God's concerns, God's plan, and God's intention. Yesterday, Yesterday was Maundy Thursday, a day when Christians specifically think about the night before Jesus died, the events like the Last Supper, Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, and of course the arrest of Jesus. Matthew tells us in the previous chapter that as Jesus prayed, the essence of his prayers was this, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. But not as I will, as you will. Jesus knew what the plan for Good Friday was, and he voluntarily chose it. It was deliberate. And we've already noted this morning that Jesus had already demonstrated that he had power and authority over illness, nature, and even death itself. And as you read through the Bible, it becomes inevitable that you have to conclude that God is nothing if not powerful. Powerful enough to prevent an event like this happening, unless it was deliberate. And it's a point that is underlined in our reading in verse 50, where we are told that Jesus gave up his spirit. I'm told that's a very unusual phrase in the Greek in which the New Testament was originally uh, written. It's not a phrase that one would normally use to describe the death of an individual. And notice that before those words, we read that Jesus gave out a loud cry. That's not the way people died when they'd been crucified. People died when they were crucified from total and complete exhaustion. Jesus' life was never taken away from him. He gave it up. He gave up his spirit. It was deliberate. Not an accident. Not a misfortune. Not because Jesus' enemies were cleverer than he was. It was part of God's plan, intention, and concern. It was deliberate. You know, while Matthew doesn't go into the details of how Jesus was killed, it does record a great deal of detail about the events that surrounded his death. You'll have noticed in the reading that Jill read for us, there's a whole succession of events that surrounded the death of Jesus. Um, They're listed in the passage, and one thing that they have in common is that they were awesome They weren't trivial or insignificant events. They were remarkable, uh, and they were unusual. Um, There are at least five of them. In verse 45, for instance, we're told that there was darkness from noon until three in the afternoon over all the land, not just Jerusalem, but a much wider area. 
And this wasn't the natural darkness that goes with a cloudy day. If you turn over to Luke's gospel, uh, who also records this event, he specifically tells us that the reason this happened was because the sun stopped, stopped shining. Uh, and now this can't be explained uh, as some sort of natural phenomenon like uh, a solar eclipse. Uh, the, Jesus died at the time of the Feast of Passover. Now the Feast of Passover always happened when there was a full moon. Solar eclipses only happen at the time of a new moon, the exact opposite of the lunar cycle. And let's face it, all of us know that solar eclipses don't last for three hours. This was not a natural phenomenon. It was a miraculous event, darkness over the whole land for this period of three hours. And secondly, you have one of the most remarkable statements that Jesus ever made. In verse 46, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is said that Martin Luther, the German theologian and one of the instigators of the Protestant Reformation, um, was working to prepare a sermon on this text. But having thought about it for some time, all he could exclaim was, God forsaken by God? Who can understand it? And who can understand it? It is perhaps the most awesome idea of all that God could be forsaken by God. Thirdly, in verse 51, we're told that at the time of Jesus' death, when he gave up his spirit, uh, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. Now, this curtain screened off a special part of the temple in Jerusalem that was known as the Holy of Holies. The curtain itself was a substantial thing. It was taller, taller than this church. And one of, one Jewish historian tells us that it was about four inches thick. So it wasn't really a curtain. It was more like a tapestry and some. And this thing was torn, not fraying at the edges, not fraying at the bottom, but torn, ripped apart from the top down to the bottom. Fourthly, in verse 51, we read about an earthquake. While finally, in verse 52, we read about tombs being broken open and the bodies of many holy people who had died being raised to life. Unnatural, unnatural darkness, an extraordinary statement, a torn curtain, earthquakes, the dead coming to life. I suppose that... Some of these events might be described as a coincidence, but all of them? Think not. And what do they mean? Are they simply saying, listen up, something important is happening? Well, they're certainly saying that. But there's more to it than that. They also help us to understand what was happening because of Jesus' death. They were awesome, but they were also significant. Significant because they speak, first of all, about Jesus' victory. Jesus' victory over sin. Think of the darkness that extended from noon until three that first Good Friday. Think of the extraordinary cry from the Son of God, Why have you forsaken me? In the Bible, darkness is often used as a symbol of God's judgment on sin, on evil, or on wrongdoing. For instance, in the book of Amos, 
speaking about judgment that was going to come on the sins of God's people, uh, in chapter 8 and verse 9, we read these words. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And now darkness reminds us that the threat of judgment for wrongdoing was not being poured out on the sinners, but on the sinless Son of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians puts it this way, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There was darkness over the land, And there was darkness in Jesus' soul. Do you remember the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These words quote a passage from the Old Testament in Psalm 22. This psalm, interestingly, includes a number of references that are strikingly similar to what actually happened to Jesus when he died. But its opening verses speak of a person utterly forsaken by God. You know, separation from God the Father must perhaps have been the worst part of what Jesus experienced on the cross because Jesus had never, ever experienced anything but the closest possible relationship with God the Father. Imagine for a moment that you have a friend, a friend that you have offended in some way, They're profoundly hurt. And they don't want to know you anymore. They unfriend you on Facebook. Uh, They ignore you at parties. They cross the road if they see you coming. If somebody raises your name in conversation, they close the conversation down. They forsake you. They don't want anything to do with you. They ignore you completely. Forsaken. Forsaken for wrongdoing. Jesus was forsaken by God, not for his wrongdoing, but for my wrongdoing. For the wrongdoing of each one of us. For the wrongdoing of all humanity. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These events speak of victory over sin and judgment, but they also speak of Jesus' victory over separation. Remember the third event that we mentioned, the tearing of the the curtain in the temple. As we said earlier, this curtain screened off a special part of the temple in Jerusalem. It was called the Holy of Holies uh, from the rest of the building. Now, the temple was a busy place. There were lots of comings and goings. There was lots of activity. Worshippers were constantly coming to pray, to offer sacrifices. The priests were very, very busy carrying out their duties, carrying out their sacrificial duties and other things. There was an awful lot of things happening in the temple. It was busy. But the Holy of Holies was an exception. The Holy of Holies was... 
was the complete opposite. With only one exception, nobody ever went in there. The best way to understand its significance is perhaps to say that it symbolized God's presence with the people of Israel. Once a year, and only once a year, on the Day of Atonement, under very special conditions, the Jewish high priest would enter this area and atone for the sins of the nation. And apart from that, this curtain represented a line that was never crossed. You could say that it symbolized a barrier, a barrier that went back to the very dawn of time, to the Garden of Eden, when mankind chose to disobey God, go its own way, and they were cast out of the paradise that was the Garden of Eden and lost the privilege of direct access to God. What it said was that God, yes, God is with his people, but his people couldn't get too close. There was a barrier that separated human beings from God, and that barrier was torn in two at the very time that Jesus gave up his spirit. The curtain said that you can only get so close to God. And the death of Jesus saw it ripped in two. The book of Hebrews helps us to get the point. In chapter 10, it says this, We have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened up through the curtain. That is his body. It symbolized the direct opening of access to God. Men and women no longer need to be at a distance. We can get close. But finally, these events symbolized one more thing. They symbolized Jesus' victory, victory over death. What of the final two events? The earthquake, which led to the tombs being broken open, and the bodies of many holy people who had died being raised to life. Now, as you read these particular verses closely, there is a little bit of a puzzle, because in verse 52, it tells us that the bodies of many holy people were raised to life at the time of the earthquake. But the next verse tells us that they only came out of their tombs after Jesus' resurrection and then went into Jerusalem and appeared to, it says, many people. Personally, I'm happy to take that timeline at face value and focus on what it tells us. That Jesus not only won a victory over sin, over the things that separate us from God, but over death. And not just his own death, but also the death of all who are holy. That is, all who are in a right relationship with God. And if our sins are forgiven, that can be us. Jesus' victory over sin and separation makes it possible for us to be righteous in God's eyes, uh, to be holy. But there's perhaps one more thing to notice from this passage. Right at the end of this section, uh, we're told about the reaction of two types of people who witnessed the events of Good Friday. On the one side, there was a group of soldiers in effect, Jesus' executioners. On the other side, a group of women who had been following Jesus for some time. It is hard to imagine two more different groups of people. The soldiers, you know, you can't be an executioner if you're sent sentimental. 
you can't be an executioner if you are sensitive. And this group of women, they'd been following Jesus all the way from Galilee for some time. Uh, They were clearly committed and concerned and sensitive to what was happening. Two very, very different groups of people. The soldiers, as they witnessed the event of that Good Friday, as they saw the awesome events that surrounded it, they were driven to just one conclusion, that Jesus was no ordinary victim, that, as it puts it in the words of verse 54, that surely he was the Son of God. And the women? Well, the women didn't need to be there, did they? The soldiers had to be there. It was their responsibility. They'd been told to execute three criminals. But the women didn't need to be there. Why were they there? Well, in spite of everything, they were still following Jesus. Verse 55 tells us, Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee, and they were still following him. And if we read further on in the chapter, in verse 61, we discover that when Jesus was buried, some of those women were still following. They were sitting there opposite the tomb. And of course, if we move forward to Easter Sunday, the women were still there following. Two responses to the events that unfolded on that first Good Friday. But what about your response? Because of the victory that Jesus won on the cross over sin, over separation from God and death itself, we can be delivered from the consequences of our sin. We can be close to God. We can face our own death with confidence. If we're to enjoy all those things, we also need to respond in the same way as those two groups of people by affirming, like the soldiers, that Jesus was the Son of God who died for us. And like the woman, by following him. And there's a choice to be made. Jesus' life was given deliberately to win victory over your sin and my sin. Victory over those things that separate us from God. Victory over the death that waits for us all. What are we going to do? Are we going to ignore it? Delay the decision? reject Jesus? Or are we going to recognize that surely this Jesus was the Son of God? And are we going to follow him? That's the challenge of Good Friday, to follow the example of both the soldiers and the women, to recognize his lordship and to follow him. And if you want to start that journey today, Good Friday is no better day. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, was willing to die for us, to give his life for our salvation, to give our life to, rest- to give his life to restore relationship with you, to give his life so that we can face death with confidence and certainty about eternity. Heavenly Father, we pray that each one of us 
would face up to this challenge. And Father, we pray that you would help us to respond in the right way. Amen.